I would like to start by telling you a story. Don't worry, it's not candy cane fiasco. <laughs> I'm sure some of you would like to hear that story again. And if you do, uh, maybe we can have a late night story time later on in the wee hours of the morning. This story is going to be a little bit different uh, than the candy cane fiasco. I don't know if this is a true story or not. I found it online. Um, I added a few details, but I do find it to be a very powerful story. So it goes something like this. There was an 11-year-old girl who one day went up to her dad and said, Dad, what are you going to get me for my 16th birthday? And I'm sure she was thinking, you know, at that time, I'm going to have my license probably and a brand new car would be a great present to have. Her dad thought about it, looked at her and said, be patient, my dear. We have plenty of time. We have plenty of time. When she turned 15, sometime during her 15th year of her life, she uh, fainted one day, and her dad took her to the doctor, and after a number of tests, the doctor pulled the dad aside and said, your daughter has an incurable heart disease, and she is most likely not going to live. She doesn't have much time left. So as he was sitting on the bedside of his daughter as she lay in the hospital, she turned to him and said, Daddy, did you hear that I have a bad heart and that I'm going to die? And he looked at her and he said, No, you're going to live as he got up to leave the room. Before he could get out the door, she called across the room and said, How can you be so sure? And he turned and he quietly just said, Because I know. And then he left the room and quietly shut the door behind him. Two days after her 16th birthday, the girl lay in the bed of a hospital recovering from surgery. She turned and she looked at the nightstand next to her. and She found an envelope that had a note and a letter inside. So she opened up the letter and she pulled it out. And she read this. My dearest daughter... If you are reading this letter, it means that everything went well. Just as I told you it would, when you were a little girl, you asked me what I was going to give you for your 16th birthday. I didn't know back then, but my present to you is my heart. I have given you my heart in place of your bad heart so that you can live. Use the life that you have been given for good. I love you so, so much. Your dad. This reminds me of another story. A story that starts way back in the beginning of time. And this story is not unlike this one. This story is about our creator and our father God who created us for community, and gave us everything to demonstrate his fatherly love toward us. He desires for us to have a right relationship with him, and he desires that we have a right relationship with those around us. And that's what this whole weekend is about. Koinonia. Koinonia. It's a Greek word that basically means fellowship and community with one another. 
All right? And we have added a tagline to that. We've called it relationships that matter. Now, if you notice, it says this on my shirt. Now, this shirt may or may not have been part of the inspiration of that tagline. You're not going to get that out of me, but if you twist Sam's arm, he might spill the beans and let you in on that one. Um, but we want to talk about relationships that matter because God wants us to have relationships that matter. And so Sam came up with a working definition of koinonia for this weekend. You're going to hear him talk more about that tomorrow night. And it goes something like this. Our communion with God connects us to one another. Our communion with God connects us to one another. So here's a goal that I would like us to perhaps have by the end of this weekend. And I was a teacher for years. And in the classroom, if you're a teacher, you know we love to have learning targets, right? Something that we're shooting for. And so we're hoping that by the end of the weekend that you gain something that you can implement toward having healthy relationships first with God and then with one another, all right? So by the end of the weekend, ask God how he can show you what you need to hear this weekend because we're probably all in different places. Something that you can use to put into your life so that you can have healthier relationships with God and with one another. But tonight, we are going to focus on the relationship that matters most, and that is our relationship with God the Father. All right? The main uh, passages that we're going to be using are going to be found in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. So if you have your Bibles, grab those. If you want to open up your apps, it would be a good thing to do too. Um, and we're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 26 to 31 first. And we're really going to focus in on how do we see the fatherly relationship that God has toward us and how that is demonstration for how we ought to live our lives and the way we ought to have relationships. So as we read all of these verses tonight, I want you to intentionally be looking for the traits and the attributes of what make healthy relationships, all right? Here we go. Verse 26 of chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The first thing that we want to take a look at was in that very last verse. When God saw everything that he had made, it was very good. 
And here's where we are introduced to the heart of God. We're introduced to his desire to pour out who he is on his creation. So in that, when he says that everything was very good, we see God's pleasure with his creation, and we see the love that he has for his creation. And that's his heart. In all of his story throughout the word and throughout all of time is that with Adam and Eve first and then with us, that his design is for a real and intimate relationship with us. Love and pleasure are both attributes of his design. Let's look at some more. If you really think about who God is and we think about creation and we think about his story throughout all of it, there is an overriding theme throughout all of it, and that is the theme of blessing. If you look at back at verse 28, it said, God blessed them. God's favor and benefit. He wants to pour out his favor and benefit on us. And that's the first aspect of his blessing, is if you look back even more, it says that Adam and Eve, and then us as well, are created in the Imago Dei. We are created in the image of God, in his likeness, which means we share. We share in his personality. We share in his responsibility. We share in his morality. And we share in his spirituality, which is an amazing blessing in and of itself. Let's read on. Let's go to chapter 2. And I'm gonna, we're going to jump to verse 7, and we're going to read verses 7 through 10. Then the Lord God, this is kind of a retelling of the creation of man, a little more detail. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. All right, we need to pause there. We need to pause there. Because this blessing that I was talking about, this spiritual blessing, is amazing. If you think about it. God took man, formed him out of the dust, and then he breathed his breath into him, putting the very spirit of who we are, an eternal spirit, into us. We are spiritual beings, and there's no creature on this earth, no other living thing that actually gets to enjoy the connection with God on a spiritual level than we do as human beings. What an amazing blessing that is, in and of itself. All right, let's pick up in verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted the garden, a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of the Eden and to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. All right, let's jump to verse 15. We're going to go to 15 through 18, which says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely eat. Die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. 
So what do we see here? We see some more attributes of how God is designing this whole idea of communion and relationship. What we see is that God is not a deistic God. He did not create all of the things that we see around us, including us, and then sit back and just sit there and fold his arms and watch as human beings kind of fend for themselves and he's just kind of observing and, you know, for his amusement, right? What did he do? Immediately after Adam and Eve were formed, it says that he interacted with them. After it says that God blessed them, he spoke to them. Communion with him was actually built into his design. Being created in the image of God indicates a paternal and a filial relationship. And that's the way he wants it to be. Look at some of the other ways in which God the Father blesses Adam and Eve. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He tells them to subdue the earth. He tells them to have dominion over the earth. And after putting the man in the garden... He actually has him work it and keep the garden. So here we see that God gives us position and he gives us purpose. We have purpose as image bearers of God. And God creates this amazing lush garden. It's got, I can't even imagine what this garden looked like with every kind of plant, every kind of tree. I would love to see what the tree of life looked like and the tree of good and evil. I'm sure we may see them one day um, if they're somewhere or in heaven. Uh, It'd be great. But he gives them all, all the seeds, all the plants as food. And then he looks at Adam when Adam was at first by himself and he says, it's not good for him to be alone. It's not good. Let's make somebody for him, somebody that is fitting for him, and he gives him Eve, right? And so we see here that God provides. God cares, and he is a God of provision. And he begins this process of creating community with one another. Not only do we have community with him, we now can have community with one another. What a beautiful beginning to a relationship with our creator and our father God the way he intended it to be. But if we get to chapter three, we know it doesn't last, right? In the verse, first seven verses, the serpent comes. The serpent fools Eve, promises her that God is not telling her the whole truth and that she can have something way better than what God has given her. And she falls for it. But isn't this the lie of Satan all throughout history that I'm going to give you something way better than what God says he's giving you and it never delivers? That there's always consequence and there's always regret when we follow his plan. So she eats of the tree, Adam eats of the tree, and sin enters the picture. Our aspect of being spiritual beings as image bearers has been broken And now spiritual death is now the new norm in humanity. And uh, it's sad. It's sad that what God intended has been broken. So let's go to verse 8 through 10 of chapter 3. And I want to see now how God responds to what just happened of their disobedience. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I actually find this part of the story pretty amazing because we know that God is omniscient. We know he knows all things. We know that God knew that Adam and Eve had disobeyed and that they had sinned against him. And how did he respond? He just quietly walks through the garden. (laughs) It's the cool of the day. It's like early morning or it's early evening, and he's taking a stroll. And we know that this was not unusual. It says they heard him walking in the garden. Adam and Eve were like, what's that sound? It's like, we've never heard that before. What could it be? You know, they were like, they knew that it was the Lord God walking through the garden. Communion with him was normal. This is the place of his presence on the earth at this time was in the Garden of Eden. And they commune with him on a regular basis. So they were not surprised to hear God walking in the garden. But I guarantee you that this was the first time that they were not excited and they weren't filled with joy because they knew that they had disobeyed. And what God, he could have come in. He didn't come rushing in. He could have rushed in with a lightning bolt in his hand and said, get out here right now, you disappointing humans. I'm done with you. I can't believe I've given you everything. And here's how you repay me. He didn't do that. He quietly calls out, where are you? And if you think about that, he knows where they're hiding. That where are you was more of a, why are you there? Shouldn't you be out here with me? And when they do come out, it's amazing how, what sin does to us and how quickly humanity fell. Because even at that moment, Adam did not admit to his guilt of disobedience. All he said was, we hid because we were ashamed of our nakedness. And you'll notice that also at this moment, the community within humanity has also been broken. And it followed throughout all of time. Because as soon as God called him out on that, it said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to? And what did he do? It was the woman that you gave me. It was her fault. He throws her under the bus. If there were buses in the Garden of Eden, which I <laughs> doubt there were. It would be a Garden of Eden tours. You know, it's like if you look to the left, there you see the tree of life. Um, but he does not admit to his wrongdoing. He calls her out, and then she blames the serpent. She blames the serpent. And, uh, okay, here we go. And this is what I love about this, because the attributes of God that we see here, this is why we know that he has a fatherly disposition toward us, because we see his patience. We see that he is slow to anger, and he's gentle. He didn't come rushing in. He walked gently and called them out. Let's jump in chapter 3 to verse 21. In verse 21, this is what happens because of their disobedience. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said 
Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take the, tree, the fruit of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent them out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And we know that at that point, he puts an angel at the entrance to the garden by the tree of life to, to guard it. But even in our sin, there's consequence. There's consequence, but God still has a loving disposition toward us and wants to take care of us. He makes clothes for Adam and Eve. Something had to die so that he could make those clothes, which was something new because of the fall of sin. But he also sends them out. Now we know that was an act that was a consequence for their sin, but it was also so that he could protect them. Because if they would were to eat from the tree of life, they would have then lived forever in their state of sin. And so he still provides for them even after they disobey, and then he wants to protect them from more harm that would be worse than what they've already brought upon themselves. So God wants to provide and he wants to protect us through all things. And he doesn't want to leave things the way they are. We know that before time even began, he already had a plan to show us how much he loves us. Because if we back up to verse 14 and 15, this is where God addresses the serpent. And he says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God curses the serpent, but immediately we have the first prophecy of how God is going to fix what man has broken, where God is going to restore the relationship that he intended. And how does he do it? Through Eve's offspring, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, who comes to... And Satan bruises his heel when he suffers on the cross, but Jesus crushes Satan's head by dying for our sin, rising on the third day, conquering sin and death, and destroying Satan's ultimate power over sin. So remember the story I told at the beginning, how the father gave his heart for his daughter's bad heart so that she could live. Isn't that exactly what God, the father, has done for us? He has given us his heart through the sacrifice of his son, on the cross to offer us reconciliation so that he can restore what he intended from the beginning. You ever, we could jump to Romans at this time. I want to read something in Romans. Romans chapter 5. Or sorry, yep, Romans chapter 5. We're going to read verse 8 through 11. Most people know the first verse, but the verses following are excellent as well, where it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God always desires to reconcile and restore that which is lost and broken. When by grace and through faith, we confess and we repent of our sin and we believe that Jesus died and took the penalty for those sins and then he rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death, and we are saved, then it says we are adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters. We clearly see God in the sense of a father here. We see it at the beginning of Genesis in chapter five when God says once again, I created Adam in my image, in my likeness. And two verses later, it says that Adam bore a son, Seth, in his image and likeness. And this is a very same exact concept, a father-son relationship. At the end of Luke, when we read about the genealogy of Christ, when you get all the way to the end, it says, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we see God as our father. And if we can turn, one more passage we're going to look at in Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Uh, I'm always trying to find passages that I can memorize. And right now, this is the passage that I'm actually trying to work hard on memorizing. And that is, so I'm not going to try to do it though, because I'll just kill it. So I'm going to read it. Galatians 4, verse 4 through 7 says, But when the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So to redeem those who were under the law, that's us, so that we might receive adoptions as son, adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son and a daughter. And if a son and a daughter, then an heir through God. Now, it might seem weird that I'm adding the daughters in there. But there is a reason why God inspired Paul to use this picture of adoption to explain what happens when we're saved. And we need to understand what Roman adoption looked like in the first century. It's not quite the way we think about it in 2023, right? First of all, in the Roman culture in the first century, rarely would a female be adopted. It was not a normal thing. So it would make very much sense that when Paul is writing this verse, he's using just the term son because it was usually males who were adopted. Secondly, it was not unusual for parents to willingly give up their biological kids for a number of reasons. It wasn't a weird thing. And a lot of times, they would give up a son for adoption because that son through adoption, adoption might have better position, 
they might have better possession because of it. And so they would willingly give up a child for adoption. If there was someone who was a parent and had, or no, that wouldn't make sense. There was someone who had no kids, so they would not be a parent. But someone did not have their own kids, that person would then perhaps adopt somebody so they would have somebody to pass their inheritance onto. And once adopted, it was almost impossible to undo that relationship. It was pretty permanent. And it was really truly an adoption of choice and wanting. Even though it was really mostly just a relationship of inheritance and benefit and position, not one of nurturing. But the great thing for Paul's audience is that they would have understood the significance of adoption relationships. They would understand the permanence and the benefits that it offered. And here's the thing. This is why this is wonderful, because God permanently adopts us. It cannot be undone. He permanently seals us with the spirit of his son, which cries out, Abba, Father, which is kind of like crying out, Daddy, and it's really only reserved for the son, the son of God. But we get to share as followers of Christ, as heirs, in all that Jesus enjoys in his relationship with the Father. And we not only enjoy the benefits of inheritance, and position, but we also enjoy the outpouring of God's nurturing nature toward us. In Ephesians 1, it says that God, because of his love, he adopts us. And it says he lavishes his grace upon us. Lavishes his grace. He continues to bless us even when we enter into a new relationship with him. And this all is what really leads us to our big idea. So finally, you get to write something in your book. Hopefully, you've been taking some notes. But here's our big idea for this thing, that God the Father created us for community, and through his example, we see his design for healthy relationships. God the Father created us for community, and through his example, we see his design for healthy relationships. Starting in Genesis and throughout the rest of God's story in his word, we, are, we see the character traits of a father for his children. I'm going to read a bunch, and you have a bunch of lines in there, and we're going to look at some of his traits pretty quickly and I have one verse that I'm going to read for each one. Some of them will have more than one reference. So if you want to jot those down and look them up later on your own, please do so. All right? So here's how we see God, our Father. We see his love and affection. Micah 7, 18 through 19 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of the inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And then we see God's forgiveness. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We see God's protection. Psalm 121, 7 through 8, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We see God's provision. Matthew 7, 11, if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God listens. John 9, 31 says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. God teaches us. Psalm 71, 17 says, oh God, from my youth you have taught me and I will proclaim your wondrous deeds even though we might not like this next one, God disciplines. Hebrews 12, 6 through 10. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Oh, listen to this last part. I love it. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. We also see that God is dependable. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then finally, we see that God is patient. Psalm 86.15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we know that this is not an exhaustive list. There are many other character traits that God shows toward us, but through these, he demonstrates what healthy, godly relationships are supposed to look like. And through the process of sanctification and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of sin loses its grip on us and we become more and more like our Father and our Savior. As image bearers, who have been restored to a right relationship with God, we are called to take on and practice his character. Take a look at these three cans on the table. I am sure that you've been wondering what these are all about. (laughs) Here we go. Didn't mean to do that. I want you to imagine that these three cans represent relationships. Uh, with God, and with other people. Now, tomorrow, we're going to be focusing on our relationships with others. For tonight, I would like you to imagine that these cans represent your relationship with God. And I'm going to explain each one, and then I would like you to think about which one you feel you are right now. How is your relationship with God? Some people have no relationship with God. You're broken, you're lost in your sin. 
and you are disconnected from your creator and your father. This might be you. Others, you might be saved. You might have accepted Christ as your savior, but maybe, maybe you're struggling with sin. Maybe you're struggling with doubt. Maybe your relationship with God is kind of rough around the edges. Maybe you are pursuing other idols in your life, like a job, money, relationships with friends or a significant other, and it's replaced God as the center figure. It could also look like this one here. Because we know that when we uh, accept the Lord as a Savior, we're declared righteous. We look like we're whole. Maybe this is the way you look when you come to young adults. Maybe this is the way you look on a Sunday morning, but during the week you're empty and you're kind of living for yourself. Maybe this is you. This one's full. Maybe you've accepted Christ as your Savior and you're filled with the Spirit. And you are enjoying the blessings of God in your life and you are pursuing him and you're using the gifts that he's given you to serve him. Maybe this is you. I'm going to ask Sam to come up if he's able. And he's going to underscore with a little music as I ask you to think about this here. And I'm going to work our way backwards. I'm going to ask, what should our response be? How should we respond to where you feel your life is at with God right now. If as you're considering this, you're thinking that this is you, man, my relationship with God right now is awesome. Keep your eyes fixed on the Lord. Keep your eyes fixed on the Lord. Don't turn away. And I would ask that you would think about how you are using your gifts to build up the church and to reach people that need to be reached? Are you discipling others? Are you encouraging others and helping them to have healthier relationships with God and with one another? If this is you, I'd ask that you would spend some time in prayer, asking God to show you your heart. I would ask him that you would ask him to convict you of the things that you're holding on to that are hurting your relationship with him. And then I would ask you to find a mentor. Find a Paul. Find somebody that can encourage you. Find somebody that can work in your life to help build you up, but also to call you out, to challenge you, to help you to grow, you need to find one of these people in your life. And if this is you, I urge you that you do not leave this place tonight without knowing Jesus Christ is your Savior that you do not leave without surrendering your heart to the Father God who created you with the intention of having a relationship with you. Because out of all the relationships 
that we will ever be involved in our lives. This relationship right here between God and us, it's really the relationship that matters most. And it will pour out to the relationships that we have with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, what an incredible story that you began back in the Garden of Eden where the communion that you had with the first human beings was perfect. It was what you intended. It was what you designed. It's what you wanted. And it shows us that you are a father that loves and finds delight in his creation. We know that sin messed it up. But God, we can have a restored relationship with you. You made the way through your son on the cross. And I ask that you would help us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would convict us, that we would first surrender our lives to you and then we would seek living it out, that we would first work on our relationship with you so that our relationship with others be that much better. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for desiring to draw us closer to you. And I pray that throughout this weekend, you will help us to see more of how that is possible and that you are a God who restores. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.